Hi, Lori. How are you doing today? I'm amazing, Kristen. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for taking your time today and helping me to create this podcast that could support and and develop a resource for ending child abuse and neglect. Um, So I wanted to start out today by simply asking you some questions because you're, you're a child psychologist. Is that correct? Actually, I'm a mental health therapist. I have a degree in counseling psychology, and then I have three additional certificates and degrees, um, one in marriage and family therapy, one in child and adolescent therapy, and a third um, certificate in infant mental health. And I also have an additional training and certificate in rapid resolution therapy. So a lot of my work is around family systems and really like the integrated importance of attachment and early relationships. So I essentially overlearned so that I could have all this knowledge um, with the hopes of helping a single person. (laughs) So that's been fun. That's incredible. That's super impressive. And you talk about that so nonchalantly, like, <laughs> like this is this is what I have. This is, these are all of the degrees uh, and study. So you are a fantastic resource to find out information and learn from how child abuse and neglect is affecting children now and in the future. To start out, can you define child abuse and and neglect? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I think the the interesting part about child abuse and neglect that I've really come to understand is that every single person that experiences it, either the direct recipient of the abuse themselves, the people that are in direct relationship to them, so siblings, parents of, spouses of, children of, every single person experiences that one abuse trauma in their own way. And so definitively, the Department of Human Services would define child abuse as any act or failure, which represents an imminent risk or of serious harm. And so, um, and that can be sexual abuse, exploitation, emotional harm, physical harm, or anything that would result in death that is done by a person in position of power, an adult, a caretaker, um, or a parent. And so all of that is like the textbook version of child abuse and neglect, right? However, I have never met an abuse survivor who has come into claiming their own story because it is, it's a developmental phase to claim your own story, but I've never met an abuse survivor that would say, Here's the definition of child abuse. Every single person that I've ever known has their own definition of what their abuse looked like. And then I've even met people who I would categorize their life experience as having been abused. And they would not because maybe mom screaming at you and telling you you were worthless and you weren't going to amount to anything and that, you know, you might as well be dead. And I mean, all these horrific things, maybe to them, that was really normal. And they wouldn't, don't and can't define that as abusive. You know, I want to give space and honor to the, the definition itself because um, every state has a different definition for a child abuse Every Department of Human Services has their own criteria of what is considered abusive, 
For instance, in the state of Colorado, the Department of Human Services only defines child abuse as intrafamilial abuse. So if it's happening within the family system by somebody that lives within that household, then it's considered child abuse. If it's extrafamilial, so say a coach or a stranger or a friend's parent or an older child is causing harm to a, a child, then the Department of Human Services in Colorado would define that as child cruelty and not child abuse. And so even that alone, I mean, it just gives a perfect example about how convoluted and complicated this topic is. Um, but I really wanted to say that because I think that that's a huge part of where we need to go. And like, where do we create limits, understanding and boundaries around this topic, so that ultimately, we can all find more healing and ideally stop it? Yeah, so everyone's interpretation of their own personal story is is going to be different. Um, And because there is that cycle of abuse over potentially generations, it is really hard to define what exactly is abuse and what's what's not abuse. That's interesting that that the state of Colorado is uh, is defining two different categories there between child yeah. cruelty and, and child abuse. So, yeah, I would imagine that the healing process is very difficult to mm-hmm. because first you have to define it. Right. Um, so what are the lasting impacts of child abuse and yeah. and neglect once once someone is able to or even if they haven't defined it yet what are some of those lasting impacts that can happen to a child yeah i mean so one thing that i don't think very many people understand is that if if a child is abused even preverbal especially preverbal honestly um So before they even have the language, right, that if that occurs, the likelihood of that child having long-term psychological, physical um, disease-like symptoms is astronomically higher. I mean, every one of them has a different percentage. There's a study that was done in 1997 by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente that um, essentially asked 17,000 adults about their childhood. And it was, I I believe it was 13 questions. And basically it it was called adverse childhood experiences. And basically what they did is they screened these 17,000 people And we're able to correlate that these people as adults that had chronic diseases and illnesses like mental illness, substance abuse, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, um, obesity, um, autoimmune issues, uh, gosh, like the list goes on and on and on. I mean, it is so lengthy. But so anybody that had these later in life issues, that there is a direct correlation between those issues and people who had those issues and early adverse childhood experiences. So essentially what that's saying is that the people who went through early trauma or early forms of abuse 
Granted, 10 of the 13 questions on the ACEs are directly related to child abuse. In my opinion, 11 to 12 of them. I think it's, I can argue my way into 12 of 13 without question. Um, are indirectly related to child abuse um, of some form because my definition of child abuse is slightly different than the Department of Human Services um, just because I am, come from a clinical lens and see the impact of emotional trauma and attachment on children long-term. And so anyhow, we just have only started scratching the surface with this study that happened in 97. And, and now it's fine. Like there's been thousands and thousands of follow-up research projects done on it, but not very many people in the general public know about ACEs, nor do they have an understanding that when a child experiences a form of abuse, before, typically before the age of 15, their brain changes, their body changes, everything changes, and therefore the lasting impacts, unless immediately intervened and or deeply worked on later on, are long-term and they don't ever go away. And so it's kind of that philosophy of the only way out, the only way out is through, that we have to be able to look at those experiences, work through them, identify them as ours, identify the impacts of them, and then find an effective way to weave them into the thread of our lives without necessarily having it take over our lives, which happens all too often. And or we completely ignore it. And then we have all these other issues like cancer and heart disease and obesity and mental illness, relationship problems, you name it, right? Or we repeat the cycle of abuse because we've ignored it. And so if like either one of those extremes are not helpful. And there's this whole middle ground that um, can really create a lot of change for people if we were able to understand the long-term impacts and effects of it. Yeah. So, so you talked about abuse during pre-verbal. So yeah. that you would say that that's zero to two years old. It's really like zero to five. I mean, most children up to the age of five are not using their verbal language to ask for what they need or express themselves. Like, I mean, five-year-olds usually developmentally are able to interact socially and communicate their needs and wants with others around them. But before that, we're still really in this very autonomous state of existence and are learning by way of observation. And kids are still in a lot of parallel play when they're before the age of five. And so, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah, that's how I would look at it up to five, about five is pre-verbal. Clinically speaking, how do you break into the healing process of a child or an adult that had encountered abuse during that time period? Because the kids don't have memories for the first at least three years of, of their childhood. So can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so what happens when children experience abusive sensations or, or experiences? I don't want to overuse that word experience because it's really traumatic, right? Um, and I don't want to minimize it at all. But when a child is abused before the age of five and they're pre-verbal, the, the best way that 
that I find clinically and through all the work that I've done and know to do is to find a safe and secure attachment for that child and continue to reinforce comfort and security because basically what you've what's happened is the brain immediately when there's an abusive experience the brain immediately ex- um, has the sensation of fight or flight and children aren't supposed to have that experience right they're not supposed to know that they have to stay alive before the age of 15 the number one fear of all humans is the sensation of death and and ultimately that means abandonment and so that's the number one fear and so when a child is abused they have that same sensation within their body no matter how big or small that abuse is it's the same sensation the brain does not know the difference between a big trauma and a little trauma or um you know it just doesn't understand that and so when a child has that our jobs as adults is to fill in that hole that we've that that they've experienced so it's kind of like digging a massive hole in your backyard and then you know hoping that it will just get filled up by by natural like by the rest of the earth will just eventually fill it in no it will be there until you fill it in intentionally and and if not i mean sure there might be some you know normal shifting and and changing of the ecosystem or whatever but you have to be really intentional to fill that hole. What happens though, is that a lot of times kids don't have that experience. And so later in life, they're still struggling with their own belief in self, their own self-confidence, their own value systems. And there's a thing called reparenting, right? So we have to then as adults, reparent ourselves to fill that hole and it's possible no matter what age you're at. After the age of 15, a child can start to do that for themselves a lot more easier than they could before. I've certainly seen many children, usually around the ages of eight or nine, start to do that, especially if they're older siblings to younger siblings. They kind of self-identify as that older parent, but they're like eight. <laughs> um, and they have the capacity to fill that hole a little bit better you know, in that way. But after age of eight, after the age of 15, it can happen a little bit more consistently. So does that answer what you were looking for? I I think so. And um, so I just want to also touch on, you said that your perspective or your definition of of child abuse compared to the maybe textbook description or the CDC's description is a little bit different. Can you talk about what those differences are that you've seen in your experience? Yeah, for sure. So um, I understand that um, the Department of Human Services has to have this definition because they get millions and millions of calls of curious people and people who are mandatory and or people who are mandatory reporters, letting them know of their suspicion of abuse. Um, And so they have to weed it out. They have to be able to create some boundaries and limitations around that. And I understand that. So I do understand 
that for them, defining child abuse as something that happens intrafamilially is something that they can actually work with. If a child is being abused by somebody outside of the family and the Department of Human Services gets involved, there's really not a whole lot that they can do to aside from making sure that that child doesn't have exposure to that abusive person. And so it's kind of, you know, not um, the best use of their time. And their job is not to provide treatment and services. They'll certainly contract that out for families that absolutely need it, but they don't have the means, the finances, or the capacity to provide treatment to every single family that comes into their system. So they have to have kind of this pared down definition. And I understand that. However, for me, the definition of child abuse is yes, what I described earlier. And it's also anything that would cause a child to experience a major attachment disruption that introduces them to the concept of not being safe and cared for in a secure way by their primary caretaker and or their natural environment. And so I say and or their natural environment because children oftentimes are abused by cousins who are older or family members that are older or distant relatives or um, older siblings, you know, things like that. So their natural environment, we have to constantly be aware of that so that we're keeping them safe and not exposed to abusive experiences. So my definition is much broader because as a clinician, I see the impacts of all of those things and it's semantics and I understand why the semantics are there but it's not very useful to exclude people from that simply because we don't have the funding to treat or help them. Sure. A Department of Social Services is a very valuable organization Mm -hmm. um, that also lacks a lot of uh, resources and is overworked. And children who have experienced harm or have not felt safe in their family environment or uh, outside of their family environment, those those are still traumatic experiences or adverse experiences that need healing and need attention. That makes complete sense. Um, I guess if if we could define and and you kind of you kind of talked about this a little bit in your definition of child abuse and neglect, but how does this impact a child? What does it do to a child's brain when they experience trauma specifically? Yeah, so the way that I define trauma is also very te- it is textbook only because it it's accurate and it's um, not designed to better any system or entity or justify that system or entity's reason for doing the work that they do. Um, so trauma to me is just a, a, a disturbing or like distressing experience that someone has no matter the age. Now, similarly to child abuse, because in my opinion, child abuse is traumatic. Trauma is bigger than that because trauma can include something that isn't directly causing harm to that child on purpose, like the witnessing of a car accident or 
a sudden death of a family member or um, witnessing, you know, uh, say having an animal pass away or something like that. So those wouldn't necessarily be direct forms of harm onto that child. But so the word trauma encompasses a lot more. And similarly, though, to child abuse, the brain, when we experience trauma, does goes into that fight, flight, freeze state. And so automatically, we're, we are first, first and foremost, we're animals as humans. And 95% of our brain operates on a subconscious level, thankfully. I mean, if I had to think about blinking, we, we'd be in a whole world of trouble. <laughs> and same with like breathing, right? So fortunately, so much of our brain operates subconsciously and it keeps us alive and it's intended to keep us alive. There's three to 5% of our brain that is more advanced than say a horse or a bird or a dog, right? And that three to 5% of our brain as humans gives us the capacity to remember things and imagine things. And unfortunately, trauma mixed in with that, just that three to 5% can expand the possibilities that our brain makes up about what could happen possibly or what did happen. So when we have a traumatic experience, when it's over, anything that feels remotely like that traumatic experience can be a trigger to us later on. It can, it can happen 20 years later, it can happen 20 minutes later, but our brain's capacity to remember things impacts that. And then our brain's capacity to imagine things also impacts that. So say, as an example, say I fell and I broke my shoulder and my collarbone and and my hip and I was running. So the likelihood of me running later on, you know, say a year from now, might go down because I'm afraid that if I run, then I might fall. So that's my brain creating an imaginative experience. And so humans are the only animals that have that. Deer don't, or you'd never see deer in the meadow again, right? Like they just don't come back. They wouldn't come back if they had that three to 5% of their brain that makes them advanced like humans. But because they don't, to a deer, when that experience is over, it's over. And their brain stops believing it to be happening because they don't need to stay alive again, right? Like the only reason a deer runs is there's a sensation that they might die and they need to get out of there. Humans don't have that. We are always running in our brain because we have this capacity to have the what if. And so the long-term impacts of trauma on the brain are so profound and so magnified by that three to 5% that it can cause a lot of discomfort throughout all of our lives unless we really intentionally treat it and slow down enough to recognize that that might just be the brain creating a scenario or the brain believing that it might be true. So that's where like the the value, in my opinion, the value of clinical support and or treatment can be so profound 
because we have to rewrite some of that script. And that's where when a child has a traumatic experience, us as adults in their lives, where we can make up that difference by rewriting that script for them and helping them to understand that, yes, that happened. And I'm so, so sorry that it did. And you're okay. You know, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And, and look at you, you are okay. Right. So in this very moment, all is well, the wind is lightly blowing. My wind chime is, is blowing. My flowers are bloomed. The sun is shining. Like right now in this moment, I am okay. Even though my brain is like, well, but what if you ran onto the highway, <laughs> you know, like, blah, 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 and it could go. So one of the, my favorite lines that I just recently heard is that the worst neighborhood to be alone in by yourself is the one between your ears because of that human part of our brain that um, is advanced and it, it can take a trauma or a child abuse experience and expand it exponentially. It's so interesting how our brains react to stress. And it seems like there's, um, whether, whether it's, it's one, one traumatic experience or many traumatic experiences, uh, our brain almost develops this sort of phantom stress, um, Mm -hmm. or we experience this phantom stress, over the long term. Right. I mean, that's scary. It's like willingly going to a scary movie, right? I mean, like... Yeah, who does that, right? <laughs> yeah, I was like, how do you get... Why, why would I do that? But so, I mean, billions of people do it for that reason because it elicits such a fear in the body even though you know it's not real. Like, the last scary movie that I watched all the way through and not during the day was the Blair Witch Project. Mm. And I kid you not, at the end of that movie, I was in the fetal position in the middle of the movie theater, crying my eyes out at the very end, like on the ground, crying my eyes out. It was insane because our brains, yes, the, the intention is to fool the brain into believing that it's actually happening right now. And that's what happens when we, it's, it's like learning about Santa. You can't unlearn that information. You know, you just can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. And so when the brain wants to believe it's real, it will believe it's real. And that is where a lot of the long-term impacts can have so much distress on our bodies, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and even socially and in our public health system. Because when people are stressed out and fearful, they tend to be more reactive. And the way that we are reactive oftentimes is towards other human beings. So then we go out and we cause harm and we're rude to people or we shoot people or we do all these horrific, atrocious things because we're hurting. Right. right? And, and that all comes from that place of unresolved trauma, in my opinion. Yeah. I think about this often and, um, and we're, we're definitely on, on the same page on that. Can you talk a little bit about, um, a, a single traumatic experience, like, like, let's say, you know, watching a car accident or, um, one of the worst things I could think of watching a, a parent die or um, one traumatic experience versus a continuous kind of yeah. repetitive um, traumatic yeah. 
experience exposure. or an yeah. exposure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, as I said earlier, the, the impact is the same. Like the brain does not discriminate one trauma from the next. The once it's, it's like, there's only one path, right? So once it's grooved in, it's grooved in the way that we respond is different because when we experience something one time or, or maybe a very few number of times, there is also the, it's paired with the possibility of hope, right? So like, okay, well, that's not normal. Like, that's not my normal. Therefore, there's hope, right? So that might not happen. It probably won't happen again. And so we, we can use that hope and possibility to create a sense of like grasping for, for healing or, or that it's not going to, we're not going to have that re-exposure. So that's one thing. Now, it's not at all to say, I want to be very, very clear. And that in no way does that minimize that trauma for that person and their experience and the impacts, the long-term impacts, because it just, once it's there, it's there. There's one route. Once it's introduced, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So there's that. But the other piece that I find that for children specifically who have had a number of ongoing abusive experiences like continuous sexual abuse or continuous witnessing of domestic violence or ongoing psychological abuse from a parent or a caregiver, that abuse introduces a new form of normal for that person. So eventually, again, they're still their first animals, right? So they first have to find a way to survive. And the way that they survive is is by minimizing it, normalizing it, and essentially becoming desensitized and or dissociating from it. And so I'll define desensitizing. So desensitizing can be, is in my opinion, is, is where we like um, dilute it down enough to where it doesn't have that initial high or that initial shock complete shock and fear right that i've watched enough scary movies that i'm not really scared by them anymore right so um or i've seen enough horrific things on the news that nothing shocks me anymore right i mean that's the way of our culture now with constant exposure to one another it just is what has happened not because the media necessarily is bad they're just sharing information it's it's that we have constant exposure to one another that's the issue where we didn't have that 50 years ago. If you wanted to connect with somebody, you wrote them a letter and you know you waited two weeks for it to get there and then you waited two more weeks for it to get back to you. So dissociation though is a little is a lot different in that we go to a different place in order to stay alive in that moment. So the different place is like a psychological place where we kind of daydream in a sense where we just skip out of this presence just in order 
to get through so that we're not constantly exposed. So the way that I look at it is babies of moms of po- with postpartum. Um, I had really bad postpartum depression with my oldest child and, and um, my attachment with her was lessened because I was so afraid that I brought her into a scary world and I wasn't going to be able to protect her. And I just had a lot of guilt about that becoming a parent. And um, so then, you know, I started working after she was born and I was able to eventually attach with her and kind of rebuild that security with her. Um, I started working in postpartum and I was able to identify so frequently babies that have flat affect are babies that don't feel securely attached to their primary caregiver. However, it is where they're like, they're like putty in that it's so reversible as soon as you re-engage with that baby. So you, if you're not smiling at a baby because you have severe depression, which is very, very common, once you do start smiling at that baby, that baby is like, oh my God, oh my gosh, they're like hungry for it. And, and so you can very much rebound, but um, that baby is dissociating from the lack of engagement when we're not connecting with them early on. And so we, but we can re-engage with them and re-attach with them at any point in their lifespan, any point. They could be 55 years old and we can reattach with them as long as we're doing it from that developmental stage that they're at. That's really hopeful, right? Children are are malleable. We're all pretty malleable. Our brains Mm -hmm. are able to heal. And that gives me hope on the whole process because all of these things that that we're talking about here are are severe and heavy and um and and disturbing and we're all survivors, right? Of of one one thing or another. Um, but to know that there's hope that we can change um, and we can heal. And that's the reason why I want to create this podcast, right? Is is mm-hmm. to give people inspiration and hope and encourage that healing process. Um, one of the factors in healing, right, is is really defining, which which we've talked about, but it's also recognizing that there was a problem to begin with, right? Um, so in our own healing process, where do we start? What are the adverse childhood experiences that we can look at and say, oh, wait, you know, that probably wasn't normal or that that wasn't something that should have happened to me or um, this is something that that I need to heal from. What what is that list of adverse childhood experiences? Yeah, so um, I'm going to butcher this, and I'm sorry to everybody that does ACEs research. I'm certainly not claiming that I am a pro by any means, but they fall into three, and they fall into three categories. So there's abuse, so there's physical, emotional, and sexual harm, and then there's neglect with just physical neglect or emotional neglect, and then there's household dysfunction which is substance abuse, mental illness, um, parents being incarcerated or removed from the household, um, domestic violence and or parental separation and or divorce. And so those kind of encompass the adverse childhood experience spectrum. There's um, 
there's quizzes so you can go online to adverse childhood experiences and um, you can just type that into your Google search and you can take the quiz. Um, there's probably 20 or 30 different versions of it, or they're all, I mean, they're all pretty identical, but um, maybe with just a word or two different because of different research people doing the study or what have you. Um, but yeah, those are, those are the three ca- primary categories that they fall into. I just learned about um, ACEs a few years ago. That's really helpful to identify that there's a problem to begin with. And that's definitely a good place to to start um, as mm-hmm. far as moving forward in, in the healing process. Um, so I, I think, I mean, for the first episode, I think that uh, that we've covered all of the questions that I had. 